This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. They'll have something like Japanese knockweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Madeline Hayden, founder and CEO of Nut Pods, the unbelievably successful dairy-free creamer that launched with a Kickstarter campaign in 2013. Nut Pods was an Amazon-first product that remains a bestseller online, but is now also sold in over 5,000 retail stores across the country. Nut Pods has gained a lot of recognition, as has Madeline, including being listed as number two on Inc. Magazine's list of the 5,000 fastest growing food and beverage companies. Madeline, I'm so excited to have you on. I've been a fan from afar for a few years now, and I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. So thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Allison. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so I always like to get a little bit of background. Um, I, I know that you're sort of your your trajectory into food and beverage CPG wasn't exactly a, a straight course, exactly. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. Were you, you know, a kid who was into food? Were you into brands? Were, you know, was this sure. a goal? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and my family came over here right literally the day that Saigon fell. Uh, my parents both worked for the U.S. Embassy. And so we were fortunate that we were one of the first families out in a helicopter from Saigon. And so we came over, you know, hop skipped Guam, California, and then came up to Washington. And I had just a, a very simple, modest childhood growing up where I was the fifth of six children refugee parents and so we were by far like not um not not even middle class and so we struggled and you know i'm sure anybody who is plopped in a new country that they never thought they would be in with six mouths to feed would struggle but a lot of what i saw i has actually come back to be good lessons for when you're an entrepreneur like the work ethic and getting over obstacles um, you know, English is my second language. And so in just seeing w how my parents had really worked so hard to give us this 
chance in a new country where we'd have a safer, brighter future made me just really understand that sometimes opportunities come to you and you can't turn them down and you have to make the most of it. And so, uh, you know, I grew up loving food. Um, we didn't, we didn't have a whole lot of it. And so, but, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't really know that the, the ins and outs of my, of my parents and their, right. you just knew what was in front of you. us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, but my mom could make like a chicken pho that could feed like a whole family on like one whole chicken. Right. And so she was very frugal and, and just taught me that really good food that's nutritious and good for your body, you know, can be simple as, as long as it's made with a lot of love and, and flavors. Question about that. Did, were you eating mostly, you know, um, you know, Vietnamese food or were you, in, you know, were you also eating sort of like that American kind of lunchable type of, you know, what and what what was appealing to you as sure. a kid? So I would say that my parents really understood that they wanted us to, you know, make a new home in America. And so they were really good at introducing us to the cultures of America, whether or not it's the Easter Bunny or whether or not it's the Tooth Fairy. And so, but yes, we primarily at home ate Vietnamese food. And then as I grew up in school and had, you know, school lunches and friends, then you, you get the standard American diet of of uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and um, saltines and <laughs> pizza and like that. So, right. and, what I, and what I craved, I think at the time, was just what everybody else had, right? Where it's like, oh, there's like sugar cereals over there. And like, what is this Totino's pizza? And, and both of my parents worked very hard and worked two jobs. And so, and, um, you know, my mom kind of cooked for us for, for the week so we could reheat and eat like that. And so, but I did really come to love food. Now I will confess to you, Allison, I'm actually a pretty good cook, but I stay away from Vietnamese food because I've never been able to be as good as, as my, as my mom. (laughs) Yeah. That'll, that'll happen. Yes. I've heard that. Yeah. So whenever you do it, it's not like, oh, it's just okay. It's not. It like just that. doesn't hit the way that that one hit. It's there's exactly. also so much nostalgia connected to it, and you know, exactly. Um, but, and but so I, for yeah, and I was just gonna say, you know, and I think being able to have nutritious food and being able to have good tasting food was just something where I've always loved to eat, and therefore, as you grow up, you learn how to cook for yourself because it's it's the best way for you to get all of what you want to eat. And, and nut puds was in a small way, just another iteration of that where you couldn't find what you wanted. You know, I got to work in the kitchen, tweaked it many, many times in the kitchen, tweaked it many, many times in commercial um, formulation. And then we went to market. Yeah. So, but that was after, I mean, you had another career, you, you got a business degree, you know, that was not, you were not, you didn't set out to make a food company sort of, you know, early on. So how, how did that, what did you study and what did you think you wanted to be and how did that end up coming to pass? Well, I love being able to talk about my liberal arts degree. So I have an undergraduate degree in English and I have an MBA that I earned going at night from Seattle University. 
And the reason why I chose English, even though English is actually my, my second language, was because I could see the power that mastering a language can give you. And I could see, unfortunately, my parents who, you know, my dad still speaks with broken English today, even though we've been in the country 45 years, you know, that um, people treat you differently if you can't master the language. But when you can come across and you can articulate yourself, you can express your ideas, there's real power to that. And I've loved the, the study of literature in English. And so that became a way for me to just get kind of emphasize and harness, you know, the, the written word and the spoken word. And today I'll tell you, it is definitely an undervalued skill of being able to effectively write and, and uh, speak. And so, but to answer your question, yes, before I was a food entrepreneur, I actually was in healthcare. And so I've always gravitated towards helping the communities. And for me, that meant making sure that public access to fibrillation happens. So every time you see a defibrillator in a stadium, at a university, at airports, you know, um, that was our efforts of putting public access to fibrillation. So you didn't have to wait for the ambulance to come to be able to, you know, restart somebody. And then, and then after that, ended up about five years working for a wonderful regional blood center. At the time, it's called Puget Sound Blood Center. And we, we had a team of eight reps underneath us, and we held mobile blood drives. So instead of going to a blood donation center, we would set up all these mobile blood drives, whether or not it's your workplace or university or your church, in order to make blood donation as easy as possible, because one one pint of blood, you know, can save three lives. And so it came full circle when, you know, a family member was in the hospital and needed a blood transfusion. And you realize, you know what, I helped ensure that patients in hospitals have critical necessities like, like blood for do- blood donation. So always, always wanting to help people. Yeah. And I mean, and make something accessible that wasn't before um, seems to be the pattern a little bit. Um, And then legend has it, you were (laughs) pregnant in a cafe and you wanted a creamer in your coffee and you, this is me making a, you know, I always sort of like somehow tell the story and it's, it's kind of accurate, but there's always sort of like a little bit of like romance to it. And you looked at the little, you know, white thing with the peel off thing and just looked at your husband and said, why can't this be better? <laughs> um, and then worked, you know, arduously perfecting a, um, a better for you alternative for several years. And I'm sure that is not the exact story, but so That's maybe, good. yeah, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll give good. it a B plus. Yes. Um, so, so do, I mean, is that what happened? And, and you, and you, so I mean, I'll what, tell you, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the story, and you tell me how close you got. I think you, okay. you came pretty, pretty far. <laughs> so I was pregnant with my second daughter, and we were on a family vacation. And you know, anyone who has children, like you, got to have your decaf cup of coffee on a family vacation. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I was at Mel's Diner in Lake Tahoe, and it's it's just a wonderful kind of greasy spoon type of you know family diner with pancakes and everything that my toddler liked. And I was looking down at the cup of all of the different processed single serve creamers. And I was thinking like, number one, I really shouldn't have this. This is not good for me. I'm pregnant. You know, number two, I have gestational diabetes. Everything in here has so much sugar. 
And so, and I asked the, the waitress, you know, very kindly because even though I was trying to stay away from soy, I was totally going to take the soy, Allison. And I said, well, this was also 20, else. this was 2012 or 2012. 2013. Yeah. Actually at that point, right. We, I mean, the world hadn't kind of discovered that soy milk wasn't the panacea that it, everyone thought it was for like a hot minute there, right? This I was think still, at that point, people right. had, had realized that 90% of soybeans in this country is genetically modified. And so, and, you know, but still like processed creamers versus soy creamer, take the soy creamer. And so I asked the waitress, I said, hey, you know, do you happen to have anything else? And she said, sure, I'll be right back. And she came back and she plunked down that ginormous canister of powdered non-dairy creamer. And mm-hmm. I just looked at my husband and I said, because I had been drinking almond milk for years. And I, you know, I was lactose intolerant, I discovered in college. And I was just like, these are the choices everywhere I go. And I just cannot understand why we can't have a healthier non-dairy creamer. And so, you know, my very wise husband, looking at his heavily pregnant wife who has not eaten yet, said, and maybe she do something about it you know, placating me. And, and I'm like, I will. I'm <laughs> so, going to. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Something like that. It just made me want to stop waiting for the big boys to come out with a product like this. And I could just see, Allison, like, you know, with how much almond milk was being consumed, like sooner or later, somebody's going to come out with a nut-based creamer. And honestly, I decided I didn't want to walk into a Whole Foods and see another brand and be all like, you know what? Damn, that was my idea. I, I just didn't do it. I should have yeah. gone for it. And so I started in my kitchen and I started tinkering around with the different alternatives that I had available to me. And I really wanted to have something that tasted like uh, a half and half. And at the time I was using this, you know, all coconut creamer. And it was it was the kind of creamiest one. Um, but the problem is every cup of coffee tastes like coconut. Right. And I just wanted That's the problem with coconut, coffee. yeah. And I wanted it to be unsweetened. So people like me who had, you know, a version of diabetes or pre-diabetic, or they just wanted to lighten their coffee and didn't want any sugar because we had friends that were paleo as well as like Whole30. You know, you right. just have the choice of using your own preferred sweetener and sweetness level. Right. And so, so this, that's what yeah. it started out to be. And I mean, I, I listened to the unfinished biz with Rob and Wayne. I don't, I don't remember if it's if it's Rob, but I love unfinished biz, and I, I remember I could picture you. I mean, you tried a lot of different versions of this, um, and it was a hard formula to crack. Um, and one thing that maybe I heard you say in another interview, which I thought was really interesting, was that the Kickstarter that you did in 2013 wasn't just sort of to, to get some money to fund all of this formulating, but it was also for you to test to see if there was a market for this, if it was a viable idea. And I haven't heard that really before, and I think it's a really really interesting way to think about Kickstarter as a tool. Um, Um, Kickstarter ends up being a a bigger tool than I thought. And so, and, you know, to answer your question, yes, I I had tried a lot of different 
versions. And the reason why it was hard was because there wasn't anything like nut pods on the marketplace. We were the first to be a blend of almond coconut. We were the first to be carrageen and free when everyone else was pledging to be carrageen and free and remove it. We never formulated our product with it. And lastly, we didn't have sugar. Now you think, hmm, well, that's not that big of a deal. Actually, sugar translates a lot of flavor on your palate. It's also a flavor enhancer. So we had to find out, okay, how are we going to have flavors like French vanilla and hazelnut without actually having, you know, a flavor enhancer like sugar or salt? I mean, we do have salt, but, you know, sugar. And so, and, and because we were the first to really formulate with clean ingredients, it was really like being able to hamstring yourself with, you know, a, a screwdriver and, and a hammer. That's all the tools you had. And so, but what I, what I didn't appreciate with Kickstart at the time is yes, we wanted to raise some additional money to fund my business because, you know, we were now a family of four and my husband, who was an investment banker, was supporting our family of four while I was staying at home and taking a couple of years off. But the other thing too was proof of concept. And for him, he he had doubts about whether or not it was too small of a, of a niche and maybe this is why nobody has done it before and you know for him i was adamant that a he wasn't my target demographic because he's a half and half guy or he was at the time and two i just knew like intrinsically not all good ideas come from the boardrooms of big food companies it's interesting to me because i think about almost the bifurcation at this point of, uh, and especially right now with COVID and a lot of my friends in sort of hospitality, figuring out how to have products that are viable at scale. And I feel like over the last, you know, let's say eight years, basically, since, since you were out there, there's been sort of the, the, the VC backed, I have an idea, but more likely, I have a really good brand, um, and we're just gonna we're just gonna go make it. And then there are the people that are like the food people, the you know the coconut yogurt and the different type of mustard, and and even us who I put in that, which is you know a sauce that isn't like any sauce that's on the market. And those businesses tend to be less shiny at the beginning. Um, but yet there, the irony is, is that they take more money in the formulation because we're really creating a different product than exists out there. And there just seems to be this sort of weird irony to that. Um, and then, you know, I guess at that time, did it even occur to you? to go out and not bootstrap this, to go find some investor? Or was that world just so far away from you that it, that it didn't even it was, seem viable? It was my husband's world. My husband is an investment banker. I, you know, it wasn't my world. And so, and I also knew that I would be coming from behind because A, pregnant, B, person of color, C, never been a CEO before, um, you know, like, and brand new industry. Like there was a lot of negatives and, and I think I've referred to myself as like the blind three-legged dog where it was so hard to find people that would find me bankable. And so you do end up doing things like Kickstarter and we raised $32,000 in a month and had 510 Kickstarter backers that, 
you know, verified that I was onto something that they would care about. And that was actually around the world. So that told me like, this has some wings to it. And so, and then we, we went kind of the traditional way, which is you do a friends and family round. We did promissory notes, we did convertible notes, you know? And so, but it it just ended up like I needed time to build up credibility of my idea and build up credibility to myself and to learn. And even though it was maddening at the time of how long it was taking, it took us two years, you know, and many trials to do formulation. I have to tell you, it ended up being such a blessing in disguise, Allison, because it gave me time to to think about my business yeah. while I was working away, chipping away at the formulation. Yeah. And so that allowed me to think about routes to market and, and marketing and positioning and all of that. Mm-hmm. Which so, is all uh, the stuff I want to get to also. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's interesting. I remember when I first opened the cooking school, about two years later is when we started to get like a lot of press. And I remember feeling that same exact way, like, thank goodness that we got, we had that two years to, to figure out who we are, you know, and to, and to really like get it right a little bit, because if we had blown that big story in the first three months that we opened, we would have been a hot mess. And, you know, I think when you do bootstrap, there's less pressure to kind of come out of the gate gangbusters um, and just kind of take the time and, and really figuring the stuff out. Um, but before we go to the break, which we'll go to in a minute, you did launch in 2015. You, you got it settled. You figured out your stuff. You got your formulation. You launched on Amazon. Um, and I had heard you say that that was um, you just wanted to put it out there and, and that going through sort of stores was more challenging a, you know, payment terms are 60 or 90 days versus like zero on Amazon. Um, But I'm sure you had more thoughts about why launch on Amazon. And I guess, was it an immediate success the minute that you Mm -hmm. launched it? Mm -hmm. So actually, we had launched in uh, eight store chain at the time. Now it's about 12 stores called PCC Natural Markets. And they were wonderful. They were here in Seattle, where I grew up, so, you okay. know, they were big coffee, uh, coffee friendly town because mm-hmm. we, we love our coffee in Seattle. Right. And so, but we knew, gosh, you know, I mean, there's like eight stores here. How, how yeah. are 510 Kickstarter backers going to be able to reorder? And I knew it was critical. We had, we had worked so hard to get 510 Kickstarter backers. They were mm-hmm. already invested in us because they had given money. They had already stuck with me <laughs> for the two years that I was formulating. And so I wanted to be able to harness those early adopters and be able yeah. to give them a way to reorder our product. Got the it. only way that you can do overnight distribution is via something like Amazon. Mm-hmm. And there was you know, still Amazon is the, the Goliath and the e-com space. Mm-hmm. And so, and yes, there are absolutely differences, you know, advantageous differences um, when you use Amazon, when you're a seller, not when you're a vendor selling right. to them, but when you're a seller, you know, it's net 15. That cash right. is so keen in your first yeah. couple of years. And so it was really important for us. The other thing that made it really important is, you are able to hear via the reviews 
about what people think about your product. Yeah. What's our flavor levels? Remember, like, can they really try French vanilla if we don't have any mm-hmm. sugar? And you never so, get that when you're, you there's that. a retailer in between. Yeah. All you get is like, did you sell more? Did you sell less? Was there right. a, was there a sale, you know? <laughs> and so, um, but being able to hear the feedback from consumers was really important and it allows you to have social proof because right. people don't want to buy off of radio ads or billboards anymore. They want to hear what other people are saying about this product to reduce their risk. Yeah. And so with, with Amazon, it allowed us to have the social proof. It allowed us to have the access to those customer, you know, um, reviews. And it also allowed us to have better cash terms for our fledgling business. Yeah. And the reason why we didn't, we didn't expand to other retailers probably for the first two years was because we literally were bootstrapping and we were bootstrapping so hard that we couldn't afford to buy more ingredients, more packaging, you know, more tolling to make more product. And we were constantly already selling out on Amazon because we had gone successful. We were number one new release, number one best-selling item. And we're still the, you know, the best-selling creamer today on Amazon. Yeah, it's amazing. And so for us, we we couldn't keep up with the demand, and we didn't want to add more retailers because it was hard enough to supply our, right. you know, PCC and Amazon. We didn't want to exasperate that while we were still bootstrapping. Yep, makes total sense. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then come back, and I have, you know, a gazillion questions. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. I'm back with Madeline Hayden of Nut Pods. Um, so let's let's back up for a second because you know you were I, I think you were very ahead of your time, not only sort of on you know the the dairy free piece of things, but also 
you know, Amazon, right? I mean, last week's guest was all, I mean, 50% of all e-commerce sales in the country are on Amazon. I think Walmart is something like 4%, just to give you, you know, what what a behemoth it is. But at that point, um, you know, it wasn't, not every company knew that they had to have what now everyone talks about as an omnichannel strategy and an Amazon strategy, right? So I think you were... Um, definitely ahead of the curve. But if, if you had to sort of look back, what, what would you say are, you know, a couple of the key reasons why NetPods, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of hit the ground running and has just continued to be, you know, success after success after success? I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I think number one, I felt that our product really solved a market gap. And for me, for me, whenever you see people doing a DIY option at home and people were making homemade creamers, it's because they are not satisfied with something that's on the marketplace, the gap in the marketplace. I think number two is we were very clear on how we were different. We, you know, we had a balanced neutral taste. We were completely unsweetened and we also had transparency. So there's one thing about creating a, a, you know, a product, and then there's another that's creating a brand to support that product. And I didn't want to be the brand that said, oh, we're, you know, we're naturally gluten-free or we're naturally vegan or, you know, sure, we've got clean ingredients. I wanted those independent certifications so that as a consumer, Allison, I'm not going to be as cheap as Silk or Coffee Mate, but you know that when you buy nut pods, it's non-GMO project verified certified gluten-free, certified vegan, you know, certified Whole30 approved. And, you know, we're kosher. And so that way it's peace of mind that what you're getting is really quality. And so uh, solving a true market need. I think number two, I think we were prescient in the fact that we had a couple different waves that were going in our direction. Number one, people were moving away from dairy-free for a variety of reasons. You know, whether or not it's environmental or health or, um, you, you know, plant-based diet. And secondly, people are now moving away from sugar. So we had those type of trends that are going in our favor. And lastly, e-com was a big part of our success. And it's because it really allowed us to scale. And so, you know, you think e-commerce is like an afterthought. And that's how it was considered when I started was like, well, you should go into retail. And then... Sure. After you get, start with you know, 14 whole foods and then go yes. into 50 whole foods and do that whole thing. Yeah. And go, go through all the different channels, club, you know, maybe drug, maybe convenience stores. And then sure. Why not? Why don't you go back and get a little bit on e-commerce? But what people didn't recognize at the time was like, you know, how you scale a brand makes sense in brick and mortar, but how you launch a brand that was different. And I think that's what we did differently. We utilized digital. We utilized influencers when that was still just becoming a thing because I didn't have a marketing like budget like the other big ones. And so I had to work smarter. And for the you know early beginning ones, we worked with a lot of influencers that just wanted product to review for their audience. Well, that's great for us because we couldn't afford to pay them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so it it really became, you know, like sincere about what people were thinking about our product. And there is something that I don't know if anybody can pin it on, but 
The public knows when an influencer is genuinely supportive about a product versus when they're being paid to promote it. And I think for us, you know, we have we have an amazing support for, for our products and for our brand. And you just, you keep trying to do the right thing by solving a market need and by being, you know, good to your team and good to your customers and uh, making sure that they have the best brand experience with your product. Um, and that's what we focus on. I have a, it might be a silly question because, you know, it's 2021 and D to C and COVID and all that, but was there a moment where you considered doing it directly as opposed to Amazon and having, I mean, I don't even know if Shopify was around back then, but like, Oh, we were always like, on Shopify. Got we it. were always on Shopify. You know, when you read brands like Warper Parky or you read brands like even RX Bar, where they had a significant D2C business, you're just thinking like, well, shoot, I pay like Amazon commission and then I pay them for, you know, FBA and like, it would be amazing. And then you get to own that customer data, right? I can like email them to you know, my heart's content if I wanted when I own them. And so, but what I realized is that Amazon already has such a trusted platform and such security on their platform. And they also have, you know, the money back guarantee that people love and prime shipping. And we just could not compete with that. And so for me, I wanted to utilize them to scale in e-commerce, just like I partner with retail uh, retailers, you know, to scale in the brick and mortar. And so, and it then allowed me to just focus on making the best products, providing the best customer service and looking to the future instead of trying to like continue to master how we can create more D to C. It, it works for some people and gosh, I sure love my Chewy.com, but it is a lot of work and it's a lot of, of a team build in order to build that type of business. A team build and a constant sort of, you know, a constant focus on pull and content marketing and making sure that you're fully optimized. Um, you know, I, I guess there is an additional sort of price to Amazon, um, but for sure it makes sense for some businesses in a way. And, you know, I mean, I don't, again, I don't remember what, you know, a, a cost of acquisition in 2015 would have been, but my guess is that you just get more eyeballs on Amazon from the get-go. Um, oh, absolutely. If you're, if you're you in 2015. Absolutely. I mean, I am not going to say that Amazon is without its pain threshold. You have to have a high pain threshold in order to, you know, really work with Amazon. Um, in that that's just part, it's not personal. It's just, it's a machine and they use a lot of algorithms. And that means there isn't a person who can override. And because it's always machine learning, there are like inherent um, flaws, but they do a really good job of making sure that, you know, one brand isn't necessarily, uh, you know, unfairly advantaged than another and so, and they have done a lot of things to help our business and it's kind of mixed, right? Because Amazon is not the easiest because you don't have a person who's managing your account so much that can really like affect a lot of change because they're such a behemoth. But I have to give them credit as well, where, 
you know, when we won Amazon Small Business of the Year, they gave us a fleet of like 40 different vans on that last mile where they're delivering to your doorstep. And we had 40 of them that had our logo on it. That is unbelievable. I can't afford that even now. And so it was amazing. They gave us a nationwide, you know, um, TV ad in the middle of election. So just think about a pretty penny that they paid in supporting us. And they've, they've highlighted us for International Women's Day. So they've been a good partner. Not perfect, but they've been a good partner. You know, the truth is, at the end of the day, right, like any partner is going to have its assets and liabilities. You know, I mean, I love Whole Foods. and UNFI included. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I was going to say distributors, retailers, you know, everyone. Um, it's just, it's about sort of what your priorities are, balancing out the assets and the liabilities. And I think getting upstream as much as you can to kind of manage where you could see problems happening and trying to nip them a little bit in the bud. But speaking of sort of those other, you know, the Cahies and the UNFIs of the world, when did you, when were you like, okay, we're doing well, now we really need to start to think about grocery um, you know, how did you think about building the brand in stores differently from the way that you built it in Amazon? And, um, you know, thoughts about, you know, Amazon, you're right. You, you have a gazillion trillion reviews and there, there, there's a little bit more of a science to it. Um, grocery stores, how did you think about it? And, and what was that thought process like? So I think for the first couple of years, we were, we were bootstrapping and trying to r- raise enough money to get us to the next milestone. And, and meanwhile, we were perfecting our supply chain along the way, and we're perfecting how we talk about our business. Are we you know, a plant-based half and half, or are we a, a plant-based creamer? And so, and you know, are we plant-based or are we non-dairy or are we dairy-free? Free? So right. all of yeah. these things. And I know so, we have that problem. It, yeah, it's it's a good one to have, but it it definitely keeps me up at night. It does, and it it is really important that you pay attention to that. And I'll tell you, we had built a multi million dollar channel online. We had amazing reviews, and when I went to start to raise a Series A, um, it actually made me mad because I had a couple angel investors or a couple institutional groups that basically said, well, you've proven yourself on the e-com channel, but it, it remains to be seen whether or not you can be successful in the retail. And I was thinking like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, these customers that are buying us online are not like from Mars. They are right. <laughs> they don't live on the internet <laughs> that are going into the stores. They're just yeah. not buying there. And, and number two is like, if we can stand out as a brand, in the infinite digital world of the internet and be able to grow as much as we've been able to grow. Like, yeah, I, I felt like absolutely I can compete in the grocery store. And so the big turning point was when I, when I made, you know, you have to have a couple swings and misses at bat. When I would talk about how big we were on Amazon to retailers, some of them early on would be all like, Well, they were threatened or they would mistakenly think, well, that's not our customer. And so, and then the other ones would be all like, well, you know, that's actually my competitor. So I'm not really enthused that you're selling so well on my competitor. 
And so I had to very do a very subtle shift. And I said, we started our business on Amazon. We wanted to make sure that we really had something before we could take it into retail. But now look at how much we are selling, you know, in your area. And so when we went to Target, we had all of the sales data. So if all of the different states that we had been selling where they do the most and be able to say, we are bringing with us an intact customer base that would love to continue to buy us, but buy us with their other groceries and, you know, your retailer. And so when, when I shifted and I said, you know, we are eliminating the risk of being a brand that starts cold. We are bringing with us a consumer base that's already buying us. And by the way, they are more brand loyal, they are less price sensitive, and they are more likely to have a higher basket ring for you. Right, exactly, that they're gonna be, do well for you. Yes, that made it be an unlock for us at retail. So that that's super, super helpful. Was that helpful with retail as well as convincing a series A investor? Like, did you have to change the way you talked about it in a similar in way? In a similar way. Yeah. So when, when we talk to series A, you, you end up, it's kind of like opting in and opting out, right? So it's like the investors that understood or could see what was coming on e-commerce were embracing and thought that, look, you know, you're, your route to market is pretty smart. It doesn't lose as much. It doesn't use as much capital. You don't have to have as much, you know, of a team build out because you don't need brokers and you don't need a wholesale team. So I'm, I'm digging it. I love it. They, they saw it and they invested. And then others that weren't leaning into e-commerce still saw it as this ancillary, you know, brand or channel for a brand didn't and it's okay because it allows you to kind of choose who's the right investor for you and who's not yeah i mean i think that you know i get a lot of calls about that too and i do think it's it's like anything else it's just about alignment you know if a puzzle piece fits easily into the puzzle then you know it has that like smooth nice kind of ooh, i got that if you're trying to jab it in and, you know, it's like there's little space between the little bulge and the little, pl- you know, it doesn't work. It's never going to work. And it's only going to get more uncomfortable when, you know, you have a, a misalignment. Um, and I think that's hard for founders because, you know, it, it's hard for it takes founders a lot of because, effort to find your your alignment, you know. Well, it it also is hard because we are told time and time again, you know, to um, find the right investor and to find a value added investor. And, and when you're trying to raise money, you're all like, "Is it green? Because that money looks pretty good to me." Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. just like you know, value, no value. I kind of know what I'm doing. Just need money, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Um, but I think that alignment is really important. And I think they either will trust that even if you're doing it differently, you are exploring an angle or an advantage that hasn't been, you know, maximized before, or you let's try something different instead of like, well, this is the way that it's done. So speaking of fundraising, you know, at the beginning of the show, you were saying, you know, a woman, a woman of color, you know, a mom, a, a first time in the CPG world. Did you shift your 
your story? I mean, I guess the big question is, you know, how would you, similar to sort of what I asked about the three things that made you successful as a product or brand, what would you say are a couple of things that made you successful as a fundraiser? You know, what was the, I can give you an example for me, you know, I would, I always kind of came at it as like, well, we're still small and we're still figuring it out, but, you know, and I kind of shifted that into actually we have figured this out and we, you know, I stopped kind of doing that. I'm sorry. And maybe you can help us kind of vibe and made it a little bit more, we've got this, this, this is an opportunity for you. And I shifted my mindset, which clearly unlocked a lot of things, you know, with investors, but that's just an example. Like, can you give me a couple of examples that you would kind of pass on to earlier stage founders? So I would say a lot of founders, especially in the food and beverage space, come from outside of the industry. And that's great because we bring with us a, a fresh lens, but you know, you have to, you have to understand where your deficiencies are. And so I knew that this was a new industry for me. So what I ended up doing was I came up with an advisory board of people that could help me out in the functional areas that I would need, marketing, finance, sales, you know, and so in operations. And so where I maybe did not have the same experience, they had the experience to make investors feel more comfortable. And so I think it's important to network. I think the other thing too is there was a there was a very subtle shift, but it was a very important shift. So in the beginning, and like let's be clear, raising money sucks, especially yeah. <laughs> when it's early on. Right. And so but it's just as exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. It feels so personal. It feels like they're saying no to you or no to your team or no to your idea. And so but what I realized, and I was dejected after talking to yet another investor that had turned me down, saying I was too early, was he said, you know, Madeline, like you've done the hard part. You've created a product that is solving a need and you're getting really great traction. And they just have the money. That's all that they have. They don't have the ideas. They don't have the execution, you know. And so they need you just as much as you need them. And when he said it like that, it seemed so much more equitable because I was doing things like flying across the country to meet with one potential investor, which by the way, don't ever do that. You need to line up at least three pitches if you're going to fly yeah. anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then in addition to that, I hated that environment of going into a room with a bunch of angel investors and they, and it's like this very okay, you got six minutes and hurry up because there's like yeah. 15 people right after you. It's almost like a disposable nature. But when my advisor told me, you've done the hard part, they need you as much as they need, as much as we need them, you know, it just made it seem more balanced. And then I stopped honestly doing those group pitches because the other thing I hated about, like aside from the disposable nature of it was that, if you would get some people to bite and be interested, you'd have like one person in the whole room to be like, oh, you know, but I invested in food and I got like just right. taken for a ride and people are like, ooh, maybe not. So there's that group dynamic. And so I stopped doing that type of pitches and I started doing more 
one-on-one pitches. And there's a very remarkable difference in the dynamic when you are meeting someone one-on-one pitching your idea. And if they're not a fit, you know, then I would say that you have to have the, you'd have to have the thick skin and you have to be able to say, you know what, they're not rejecting me. They might not be a food and beverage entrepreneur. They might not be at this stage. Maybe they're more in the growing stage and be able to have the guts to be able to say, you know, well, it sounds like this isn't a good fit for you, but is there another angel investor that you think I should talk to that we might be a fit for? And it was so hard for me because I was taking it personally at first. And so, but you have to learn that, you know, it's, it's all about fit. Yeah. I I think that's, it's so interesting because I'm thinking back to a couple of things. It was a group pitch for um, UNFI, like a pitch slam thing. And I just, that's just not where I shine. And, you know, the guy that went before me had a whole, it was like he was on stage and he lit up, you know, and I, I was, he was just connecting and, and I just was sitting there thinking like, I'm next. And I'm like, (laughs) this is a nightmare. And it, you know, of course, then they're voting, everyone's voting on their phone and it comes up on the screen. You know, I came in like fifth or something. I don't know. But, and I just left there feeling like, Crap. They're, they're so, they're, like I, crap. I'm a, I am holding my company back. Like I am the worst thing to happen to this company. Um, and you know, then I was like, I'm never doing that again. And then I'm like, well, maybe that's just my ego talking. I mean, I had a whole crazy inner dialogue and you know, they got like a, an upgraded booth or something as the winner. I don't know what it was, but you know, the stakes weren't even that high, but I think the thing about founders is like, whether it's your team or a, a potential retailer or the consumer or a potential investor or even just a partner, a Costco broker, right? You're always, you're always on. You're always selling the vision and, and it, it is personal, right? Even though obviously it's not. And the thing about a lot of investors is they have institutional priorities or they, you know, they have a certain quota of types of things, or they only will write this size check or whatever it is. Um, so learning that it, that it really doesn't have as much to do with, with you or your product as, as it feels like, but, um, you know, figuring out, I think like what you said about understanding where your, where your deficiencies are, um, also probably understanding what your assets are. I'm better one-on-one. I'm better when I'm getting really wonky or, you know, learning, learning as much, I guess, about yourself um, as, as you can. So let's talk for the last couple of minutes about, I've heard you use the term CPG blue bloods, which I think is a good one. Um, I, I'm curious as you scaled and now, now you're in the big leagues and, you know, you, you do have sort of this, you know, big kid vibe of a company, um, hiring there, you know, I think at the beginning, and I've talked about this a couple of times with other guests at the beginning, you're just hiring anyone who can do 17 things at one time and figure out stuff. At some point it becomes like, maybe we need to bring in, someone who's done this specific task before at another company, or maybe they've 
been in sales and they have the connectivity to the buyers that we need or whatever it is. Like when you build your team out, um, and I think you're around 25 people now. Yeah, 30, wow. Have you been thinking consciously about that balance of people who are just passionate with sort of industry veterans? How are you, how are you keeping it entrepreneurial and not slipping into that sort of CPG, um, you know, that crew of experienced people that that obviously bring a lot of skill, but but shift the the dynamic a little bit in the company. How do you think about it in general? Sure. So I I'll tell you um, two things that I think are really important. Number one, we had always had our company pillars, right? And and those were what we wanted our business to be what we focused on. So it was customers, it was team, it was community, it was quality, it was environment, you know? And so, but what I failed to recognize, having gone through my founding team and then growing, was that we really needed to refine what our cultural values were. Now, it seems like, fuzzy bunny stuff. But I'll tell you the reason why that came about was because, frankly, I hired an executive who was a misfit. And they didn't fit into how we were. And there is absolutely true a time for your brand that you need to have people that have experience. But that's not every single job. And so, and, you know, operations, probably shouldn't get somebody right somebody who's <laughs> never right. out. you know finance probably someone who really understands about deductions and you know all sorts of tprs and ois and all of that kind of stuff and so but there's a lot of areas where you can have somebody who comes from a different um from a different you know industry and have transferable skills and what we have decided to do as a company in to be honest with you, I think it's one of the secrets of, of NutPod's success is the team gets a lot of the credit because we have been able to find incredible talent that's either been homegrown, meaning we developed them, or you know, we, we hired truly on attitude and we were able to teach the things that we needed them to be able to learn. And in return, you know, there's a lot of loyalty for us. And I'll tell you where I think that really makes a difference is we were doing DEI work about, you know, diversity, equality, and inclusion. And you realize that especially people of color or people that come from diverse backgrounds, they're not going to always come from the career track of, you know, four-year college and working a white-collar job and then finding their way here. And being able to find different people that have had different walks in life they make your organization you know heterogeneous which means when you're trying out different products when you're trying out different positionings for different products that you have you can you can rely on those people to be able to make sure that you're not too close to the chalkboard that you've kind of forgotten you know, and that you're really only, uh, uh, you're really only appealing to a small, you know, sliver of the, of the country. And I think so, one of the things that gets lost in, in sort of that diversity and inclusion conversation is, is the benefits. It's not a have to, it's a, it's a, it's an absolute, you know, I mean, the first thing you learn in agriculture is when you plant one type of crop, 
you're just, you get the Irish potato famine, right? Like it's like the first thing you learn is that a diverse garden makes for all the microbes and all of the different resilience and just the most beautiful, right? Like everything. And it's, it's, I'm glad you said that because I feel like there's a lot of, you know, this is what we should be doing and we have to make sure, but it's, it's what gets lost is like how fortunate we are to be able to build diverse teams that make everyone feel, you know, great. Yeah. And it also translates to success for your business because you have different perspectives. And, uh, you know, I would say the other thing too is there, there are certain, certainly positions that you need to have that experience in. There's a lot where no matter how much experience you have, I mean, who's led through a global pandemic before? Right. And like who's led, you know, social uprising before and being able to have people that align with your organization's culture, which means how they treat each other about, you know, do they kind of abide in this unwritten, unspoken way of like, well, this is the way the industry is and this is is the way we got to roll. Or it's like, that doesn't make sense. Let's do it this way. And so. And being able to align on behaviors like that really make it, you know, better. And we have people that are talented, that are seasoned veterans, but they also retain this entrepreneurial spirit of seeing, yeah, we, you know, this is dumb. We should try something new and let's try it this way before. And being able to not be afraid of rocking the boat just because this is how it's traditionally been done, you know, has, has been great for us. And so always keeping that outsider lens is right. important. Um, I love that. And would you say two, two more questions? Um, would you say that, you know, the successes that you've generally had when you're hiring have been, you've gone with your gut on the attitude first, or is, what would you say sort of, would be maybe the biggest indicator of a successful hire for you if you kind of look back across? So I think for me, um, there are certain red flags. If you have not tried more than one of our products, you're not really interested or serious about this job. You know, I'm looking for the people that have tried multiple flavors of our products. Um, I think the other thing too is being able to, to, tell me about how you've approached conflict because it's it's really vital and it's healthy for an organization to have constructive conflict which means be in an environment that fosters diverse opinions you know have an environment that doesn't shy away from constructive conflict which means at the end of the day all perspectives will be represented they'll be heard and we all are going to agree we're going to get in the boat and row in the direction after. Right. And there's not going to be like, well, I didn't think we should do this That's and right. you know, look at that. Right. This is what Madeline wants to do. She didn't listen to me type of. And so if they can tell me about how they've handled conflict, you know, and still been able to keep the relationship going and be able to have it grow you know, that's the trick is can you disagree and still have your relationship grow? Well, that's where the trust comes in. So that's what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for people that are curious. And so, and I'm looking for people that are growth oriented. And, 
you know, a lot of people like to say like, you know, it's a growth mindset, but to be honest with you, it's not everybody, not everybody wants to stretch themselves, go into unfamiliar territory, admit they don't have a proficiency in this area and that they're willing to learn and grow. Yep. Yep. Those I think are the that's people amazing. That I want. Yeah. That's awesome. Final question. If there was one lesson that kind of keeps repeating itself to you that you would like to tell your younger self or you'd like to share with like other founders, even if you're still working on it, which I think a lot of us still are, um, what would that be? Well, can I give you two answers? Oh my gosh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. My first answer is trust your gut. It's so overused, but every time I have gone against my gut and tried to make a decision with my head, um, it's it's never proven to be to be the right way for me. It, it, and so trust your gut. You know more than you think. And I think the second I would say is self care, self care, self care. And I'm a mom. I've created this business when I was pregnant, and I wish I could say that I take yoga and I meditate. Um, I struggle with it like everyone else, and I'm just being real <laughs> with you. And it is a it is a challenge because there's only 24 hours in a day. And when your children need you because they're doing remote school, when you're trying to you know nurture your marriage because we're living in a pandemic, and trying to be a good friend as all as well, like that's the area that I consistently cut myself short is myself. It's like, well, I don't sleep enough like you. Um, you know, I don't get as much exercise as I would like. But I've started to rethink myself. And instead of seeing it as selfish that I want to work out, instead of like, you know, play goldfish or or some other game with my kids, is I realize it is, it is teaching them about a skill set. And I want them, in order to have a healthy mental attitude, and be able to, to tend to themselves emotionally is to be able to see for me that I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking care of my health and exercise is not just about tending to my physical, you know, exercise needs, but it also is a huge stress relief for me. So when they see me take care of myself, it's just as much as they see me eating healthy. I'm taking care of myself so I can take care of them. Yeah. Yep. And that there's something that they're allowed to, you know, the martyr, the martyr mom thing is, is, is not the model, you know, it, it doesn't really work. And, and a lot of us, I think, I mean, I'm 48, I don't know how you, how old you are, but unlearning a lot of like that and, and that we're allowed to take care of ourselves and that that is a good thing. And even if it's not just so we can take care of them, you know, but just because there is inherent value in taking care of ourselves, that's, that's a lesson that I think, especially women. Exactly. And I'm not too far behind you. I turned 47 this year. So it's 47 years of a a life well lived and I'm proud of every year. And so, but I, I agree with you too, where it's like, you know, we, um, we do love them. And they will leave us at some point in their lives if we've done our jobs and we will still be an intact person after they leave. Right. And that's important for them to know too. Yep. It's important for them to know too. Yep. Amazing. Madeline, thank you so much. Um, This was such a great conversation and I learned a lot and I just really appreciate your time. So thank you for coming on. 
Thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed our conversation as well, Allison. Amazing. And Amanda, thank you for engineering um, and helping me with the techie stuff. Not my forte. I do know my deficiencies. <laughs> um, and listeners, uh, thank you all. I, I love all of your messages and all of your comments. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.